Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Good morning. We are the Howard family, and we are leading you through our Advent sharing this morning. Um, This is the fourth week of Advent, and today we will light the angel's candle. Remember, Advent actually means arrival and points to Jesus' coming on that first Christmas morning and also to his second coming. Advent is a great way for us to slow down and make room for Jesus in our hearts and home as we approach Christmas. This week's scripture is from Luke chapter 2, 8 through 15. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and, there, the, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped <laughs> in swallowing clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The angel's candle points to the miracle of his coming and reminds us that Jesus' birth was accompanied by a huge angel choir and was like no other birth in all of history. He came with a mighty shout from heaven, and he still comes to move mountains, to set free, and to bring life overflowing. Through our years of marriage, Tim and I have seen God provide and go before us many times. One time I will share with you happened in our first year of marriage and is what brought us to Visalia. We were both going through the credential program and were continually told over and over that there was no way Tim would get a job. It was a very different job climate at that time. (laughs) Trusting God would provide somehow, we continued on and eventually started the job searching process. California did indeed have very little music teaching jobs open and only one full-time choir job that we could find. Through a double interview process that did not look promising, God provided Tim not just for the job, but a job close to family, teaching the subject he most desired. 
And as if that wasn't enough, I then got to a teaching job less than a mile down the road from Tim. And as a young couple coordinating schedules with one car, that felt huge. So God led us to Visalia. He was with us then and has continued to be with us still. Through the joys and sorrows of this life, God continues to go before our family, providing above and beyond what we deserve. God is here for our family. He is here for yours as well. Keep looking for his fingerprints in your life. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you that you work miracles today. I pray that you show yourself to to each and every one of us in big ways, uh, both in our hearts and in our homes. Um, I pray that for our faith to arise in people's heart as they trust you with impossible things. You are a good God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we light the prophecy candle, will you join us in saying the phrase you see on the screen? Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. If you've got a Bible, would you open it to Matthew chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the scripture on the screen. Uh, it's difficult to compete with the Howard boys, uh, but I'm going to read all of Matthew 2, so um, just prepare yourself. We're going to read a chapter uh, together. I have no song. I have no dance to bring. I have a sermon, ba bum bum Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, And he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, um, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And when he rose and took the child and his mother, sorry, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was actually afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. It is uh, so fun to speculate about the wise men. Anybody here willing to admit that the wise men are your favorite? Like, in the scene, those characters... Uh, steal the show for you. They do for me. I, I wonder how they knew about these Jewish prophecies. Um, some suggest that these guys were discipled uh, by Daniel, who was a Jewish boy hauled off into exile. Some thought that, you know, maybe Daniel was rescued from the lion's den and then began to teach, don't bow down to kings because the King of Kings is coming. And that message was held and and passed on, and and this is how these Babylonian magicians uh, knew where to go. How how did they know enough to ask these questions? How did they know enough to get as far as they did? These are um, uh, just exciting things to think about. Uh, these uh, magi in the Middle Ages were actually given names. They're so fun to think about. We started uh, naming these guys. Anybody know those names by chance? Caspar and Belteshazzar and Mel- Melcher? Don't know. But most of our understanding of these wise men uh, comes from a carol. Right? The carol, we three kings. That's, that's where we actually get most of our understanding of where these guys are from. And what's interesting is if you read the text, because I guess as you read the text, you'll find out that we're never told there are three. It's surprising. I know. It's shocking. 
You're, the foundation from your, for your faith is being shaken right now as I speak. Uh, we're never told there are three. Um, that's based on how many gifts they receive. Um, but if you receive three gifts on Christmas Day, it doesn't necessarily mean that three different people uh, gave them to you. We're actually um, never told that they're kings, un- unfortunately. Um, astrologer would probably be a better uh, name. We get the king thing from uh, that these gifts are really expensive. So because the gifts were expensive, um, they must have been uh, royalty. Um, and you, you may know by now, but they didn't actually find him at the manger. Um, they found him as a toddler. Um, so they didn't share the set with the shepherds. So uh, let me just further deconstruct, since that's the season we're in. Um, They are from the east, but they're not from the Orient uh, either. So they're from the Middle East, not the Far East. They're probably Babylonian or Syrian uh, magicians. And so, of course, we know why all this happened. It's because singing, like if we were to sing, we innumerable astrologers from Assyria, it doesn't work and it wouldn't stick. And that song would just disappear So we opted for what's sticky, and we sing, we three kings. Uh, Because these guys are my favorite, I was disappointed this week because I I spent most of the week um, studying them only to find out that this text that we just read is not really about the three kings. Um, It is, though, about two kings. That is what Matthew is trying to uh, communicate here. It's about two kings and two kingdoms uh, colliding. And Matthew uh, has a specific emphasis on the kingdom of God. And really what's happening here in this text is Matthew's kind of um, at the center of the ring, introducing for us in this corner, wearing Roman red, is Herod, the one who's called the king of the Jews. And in this corner, weighing in at seven pounds, eight ounces, is Jesus. He's not just called king of the Jews. He's born king of the Jews. And so he's laying this out for us. There's two kings and two kingdoms. Which one will you opt for? Jesus, the right and righteous king, the promised one, the long-awaited savior of his people, the contender, the newborn king of the Jews. Matthew's going to great lengths in these first two chapters to point out to us, this is the one. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. Because the people of God had been waiting for some time Some cynicism set in, and they needed some serious convincing. How many of you know when you've been waiting for some time, you need some convincing uh, to take place? And so Matthew goes to great lengths to convince us, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. 20 times, roughly, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. 
It's like he's saying, like he's pointing to Jesus saying, look, God kept his promise. Look, God kept his promise. Look, it's God. He kept his promise over and over again. That's what happens in the lineage, which Ryan Turner um, so brilliantly preached. Jesus is the right and righteous king because he's descended from Abraham and David. He's of the line, like the right blood to be this savior. And the message was, Simple that week, um, that God kept his promise and drew a straight line despite the crooked stick, right? The family, despite the drama in the family tree, God has kept his promise. And then Matthew points to prophecies that were given hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. He points to the prophecy that the Messiah will be born to a virgin. This is 700 years before Christ, and, and, and Mark taught on this uh, last week. Was it last week? It's getting blurry. What day is it? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophecy that gets pointed to in Matthew 2 that we just read is that he would be born in Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you. Uh, from you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the, from the days of e eternity. That's from Micah 2 and was a little over 500 years before the birth of Christ. So there are prophecies that Matthew points to to say, this is the one, this is the guy. Look, um, you know, you're going to want to side with this king and enjoy his kingdom. This is God's chosen one. But he also points not just to detailed prophecies. Matthew starts pointing to patterns um, that show up in Matthew 2 as well. If I were to ask you, what are the two most important events in U.S. history? What would you say? Go ahead, maybe turn to the person you're sitting next to and take a go at it. Two most important events in U.S. history, most important transitions to take place in U.S. history. Now, we, we could probably and we will probably disagree on this, uh, but, but let me ask another question. What are the two most important events in Jewish history? Up to the point of the birth of Christ. What are the two most important events in Jewish history? Well, I, I think we'd probably have a, a better shot at agreeing on this one. It would be the exodus and the exile. Those two things take so much space in the Old Testament. The exodus being called out of Egypt through the wilderness to inherit the promised land 
and the great exile where the people of God are hauled from their land after being warned over and over again, and they're hauled off into uh, captivity. Those two things dominate uh, the Old Testament, and they're the two most significant events in Jewish history. And Matthew points to both of these, not as a specific prophecy, but as a pattern that you should pay attention to because it's pointing us uh, to Christ. He does this with the Exodus in Jesus in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. I'll let John Stott explain this pattern because he does it uh, better than I would. John Stott says, As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the rule of Herod. As Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism in the River Jordan. As Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And as Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of the Beatitudes gave his disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. So the pattern here, that Matthew wants us to pay attention to is dimples. (laughs) Just as God called his people out of Egypt, just as God called his people out of Egypt with a great demonstration of the power of redemption, so he would once again through his greater son in redeeming people from their sin. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son and the child comes out of Egypt and will lead a great and glorious exodus of God's chosen people. That's the pattern that Matthew's pointing to. He also points to the history of exile and he does that by quoting Jeremiah 31, talking about Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. This is Jesus quoting Jeremiah. And this this quote, this reference connects the tragedy that happens through Herod and his order to kill the children to the dark days where doors were kicked in, families were pulled apart, and the people of God were hauled off to Babylon, the morning that happened then. Matthew's referencing Jeremiah 31, but If you notice, Jeremiah 31 is referencing Rachel. And Rachel wasn't a part of that exile, but she was a famous matriarch who died giving birth to Benjamin long before this, this, uh, what happened in, in Jeremiah 31. And so because of what happened to her, dying in childbirth, she takes on this symbolic role for God's people. She's known as the sorrowful mother as the mother of Israel for all time. 
And her cry is something like this. I gave my life to bear a son, and now my son is no more. His descendants are no more. Basically saying, I gave my life in vain. We have no future. We have no hope. And in bringing up the exile, in, in, in Matthew pointing to the exile, I think he's trying to do uh, two things, I think. I think the first thing he's trying to do is try to remind the people of God that God is at work even in the worst times. During dark and difficult days, God is still doing something and he's still committed to his redemptive plan. I think that's what Matthew is trying to communicate. There have been horrible days in the past. And these are horrible days as 20 or so families have lost their children. These are dark days. But God has brought us through in the past, and he'll bring us through again. You can't erase these killings that happened in Bethlehem. But in spite of the suffering, Matthew is saying God is still pursuing his eternal purpose and redemption. I also think in pointing to the exile, Matthew is saying this, that the end of the great exile is here. It has begun. The end of this is upon us. You see, the people of God lived with a promise that the nations would come to their kings. The nations would come to the light of their dawn. The nations would come and, 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 and foreign kings would bow down to the anointed one, the king of kings. But up to this point, the exact opposite has happened. The people of God in exile were hauled off. It wasn't that the nations came to them. They were scattered among the nations and forced to bow down to foreign kings. How many of you have ever gotten a word and like the exact opposite happens? Like, this is what God is going to do. And it's, not only does God not do that, the exact opposite seems to happen. Well, that's where the people of God had been living. They had promises. Like Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. A thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your dawn, lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and they come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your hearts will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Up to this point, this has not been their experience. But what do we see in these wise men? The beginning of the end. As now the nations are coming. Wise men are bringing the wealth from the nations to them and bowing down. The great exile is over. You know it's over when kings are worshiping the king of kings. That's what's beginning to happen. So Matthew lays out a few prophecies that say this is the guy and a few patterns to say 
This is the guy. Jesus had a a famous uh, disciple, famous for all the wrong reasons. It was doubting Thomas. And Thomas was famous for saying, unless I touch his scars, unless I touch his wounds, I will not believe the report of the resurrection. And then when Jesus appears to Thomas, he kindly says, touch here my hands. And then when Thomas reached out to touch his hands, he slapped him in the, no, that's what I would do. But he let him touch his hands. He let him touch his wounds. Incredibly kind. And I think for me, when we see these prophecies and, and, and patterns, it, it's like touching his wounds. It's like a tangible expression that our God, his son, and his word can be trusted. And when you reach out and touch and see uh, these patterns, see these prophecies, it has that effect. Our, our faith is bolstered. So Matthew's doing it, and we as a church do it so as to say he's come through in the past and he'll come through for us again. And we do it week after week. Remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in the past. And have faith that he'll be faithful to us in the days ahead. So this is about two kings. And Matthew's saying, hey, uh, listen. Who's king and whose kingdom will you side with? Who will you serve? And Matthew makes this pretty easy um, by giving us a glimpse of who Herod is, right? This is not a hard, you don't need to pray about this decision, do you? Like we've already settled this. You You can side with Herod, who's called king, or Jesus, who's born king. This decision is easy. Do you want the maniac or do you want... God's promised Messiah, who do you want to subject yourself to? The guy who orders the slaughter of innocent children or the one who welcomes children and then allowed himself to be killed for not so innocent people? Who do you want? You want the ruler that grasps for power and seizes control Or the guy who emptied himself was born into this mess to rescue us. Herod is quite the character. If you've not read anything about this guy, um, paranoid would be like the nice way, the church way to put it. Um, In this text, it says that when Herod was troubled, all of Jerusalem was troubled. And, And that's the problem with bad leadership, isn't it? has that trickle-down effect, but this guy was troubled, and it meant Jerusalem was also troubled. Herod had three of his own sons killed because he perceived them to be a threat. It didn't stop there. He had his wife killed. He had his mother-in-law killed as well. On the day he died, he knew that there'd be a party He knew that the whole area would celebrate 
his death. So he ordered on the day of his death that other prominent leaders in Jerusalem would also be put to death so that crying would happen and weeping would happen on the day of his death and not a celebration. Do you want him? Is that whose leadership you want in your life? Or do you want the one who, when reviled, did not revile in return? Who, when he suffered, did not threaten, but rather bore our sins in his body on the tree? Do you want the wolf or do you want the shepherd king is what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. What king and whose kingdom is certainly a question being asked in this text. Um, but there's something else that Matthew's putting out there because when you read this text, you see that there's a number of ways you can respond to this truth that Jesus is king. There's a number of ways that we respond to this truth that Jesus is king, and it's seen in the characters here and the way that they respond. You can be indifferent to that news. You can be threatened by that news, or you can be humbled uh, by that news. And we see all three of these response. Like you can order a burrito because who cares? You can order a hit because you want control or you can order your life. You can submit your life to him as king. Those are three different responses. First, let's look at the indifference of the religious leaders. They know, but they're unmoved. It says in verse 4 that Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Herod is threatened by the report that the Magi give him. And so he gets this group of Jewish experts to help him because Herod doesn't know the exact details of the coming Christ. So he asks, where's this Christ to be born? And like Jeopardy contestants, you could see all these scribes hitting their button really quick. This was like, you know, 101 for them. They knew the answer really quickly. But what was interesting is that they remained unmoved. Like they knew this truth, and these outsiders are looking for him. This maniac of a king is looking for him, and they probably just go right back to their books. In 2 Timothy, it says that it's possible for us to be always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. It's not a surprise that these guys knew the answer to the question. What is surprising, though, is they didn't do anything about it. They were indifferent. They were apathetic. And this exists in the church. 
It's alive and well this morning because it exists in us. We can know these things and then do very little with these things. We can know the answers to the questions and then remain unmoved and indifferent towards this uh, truth. Often in Matthew's writing, you see that the good stuff goes to the hungry outsider and the apathetic insider gets passed over. And that's exactly what we see in these wise men. What the heck? Fields and fountain, more and mountain. They came from a long way off. They were hungry. And those inside who knew seemed indifferent to what they were sharing. And this is why it's so important. If you're here and you're not an insider, like you didn't grow up in church, you actually don't understand half of the sermon that's happening right now. I just want to say to you, you're so needed here because there's a lot of apathetic insiders in this church. And what is beautiful is to watch the light bulb go off for you. Your hunger is needed here. Your questions are needed here. Don't decide because you don't know the answers to the questions that I ask that you're not needed. We need to be with you and to be around you as you discover Jesus. It's good for this church. So please, you have a part to play. Even if you only know half of what I'm sharing with you, you have a role to play in this church because this is certainly is in us, isn't it? The second thing is you can respond with hostility. We respond with hostility to the news that Jesus is king. Let's not pretend like there's only one maniac in this uh, story. Let's not pretend like there's only one person crippled by insecurity. Let's not pretend like there's one person who wants control. Let's not pretend like Jesus and his lordship, well, that's a threat to Herod, but it's not a threat to me. Jesus is a threat to your comfort, and you know that. And so you don't want to ask him what he thinks. Jesus is a threat to your control. We're all up for having him help us with what we want to do. We struggle with asking him, Lord, what do you want? Jesus is a threat to you staying in a place of power. Jesus is a threat to your sovereignty over your life. And we, too, respond like Herod. We fight for control. You can also respond to the news, and we often do respond to the news that Jesus is king by living submitted lives and falling down in worship. I've, I've seen you guys do this before. So the wise men are a picture of humanity under the grace of God, empowered by the grace of God to seek God and to worship God and to surrender to him as Lord. These men submit and they bow low. And our worship is so much more than a song. 
I know you've heard that song before. It's so much more than that. But I love the picture that we get from these guys. True worship is humility. These guys don't just come to see, they hit their face. They bow low, they're brought low before him. They humble themselves. And true worship is also sacrifice. They bring their finest gifts, right? That's in another song, right? But these were costly gifts. They didn't bring what was left, you know? How much Lambus bread do we have left? Give it to the kid, you know? They didn't bring what was left. They were intentional. Their their finest gifts they brought to him. And true worship is costly. True worship will cost you. Maybe it won't cost you financially, but maybe it'll cost you in reputation. Maybe it'll cost you some of the things that you love most that you offer to him and say, this is no longer mine, but but yours. I submit it to you. Forget the gifts they bring to him. Again, the hunger of traveling so far. True worship is costly. And lastly, true worship is transformative. It brings about transformation. As you continue to say, this is worthy, this is worth it, this is worthy, this is worth it, it shapes you. It changes you. This is worth my time. This is worth my affection. This is the weightiest thing in my life. I look to this. I value this. I prize this. I praise this. As you worship, it forms you. And what I love is now these uh, wise men are now submitted worshipers and they can hear God say, don't go back that way. Don't go back the way of Herod. And it says they don't go back the same way. They're changed. On their way there, they needed some insider input to find their way to the child. On the way home, they're hearing directly from the Lord through dreams, and they know not to go back the same way. And I believe that's kind of a metaphor for what happens as we worship. You're changed. You don't go about things the same way when you really worship. Would you stand with me as I pray? Worship team, would you come? Danny, would you come? Lord, we recognize that all three of those responses are almost a daily for us. We find ourselves indifferent, like we've heard this before. We find ourselves really threatened, rebelling against you because we're threatened by you, not wanting your leadership. And we also find ourselves submitting to you, bowing low. just want to ask that your grace would come over us, that your Holy Spirit would come and point out anything that needs to shift in us. If there's any Herod in us, would you deal with us? If there's any apathy in us to this 
good news that comes at the Christmas season. I ask that you would deal with that. Come and search us and know us. See if there's anything that needs to shift in us. Amen. As a, as a response this morning, just want to invite you to the table. There's uh, a communion um, on either side. And uh, we want to respond to the gift that's been brought to us in, in uh, the coming of Jesus. And uh, as part of that response is the table, but we also want to uh, respond by worshiping and laying our lives down and lifting his name on high. And I was just uh, reminded this morning of, um, as Travis was speaking, of, of just uh, the parallels of, of prophecy and what, what actually came to be and, and just the, the incredible call. The incredible call to, to come and respond and, and, uh, and trust that what he's promised in our lives is going to come true. And if, uh, if today this is the first time that you've heard this story in this way and uh, you haven't received the gift of Christ in your life, this is a, a great morning to respond. And there's going to be some uh, people up here just ready to pray for you. And, and for those of you that um, just felt some things in your heart leap for hope and for joy this morning, we also want to pray um, in this season that God would bring hope and joy in areas that Maybe you haven't experienced that in a long time. So as you're ready, um, we're going to worship. We're going to come to the table and uh, we're going to pray. So the invitation is here this morning. Would you come when you're ready? I had someone come uh, forward and, and just say um, they were resonating with being apathetic to profound realities and felt prompted to share their faith this week. Um, so just found it, um, yeah, I wanted to pass that challenge along. If you are an apathetic insider, I want to challenge you to share your faith this week. Tell the story of what God's done in your uh, life. We'll see you guys on Christmas Eve. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time.